Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Scott Ritter's latest article discusses the makeup of a dirty bomb and the potential physical and political fallout from the use of such a device. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. On ConsortiumNews.com, Scott Ritter's article, Russia's Dirty Bomb Scare, Scott says, Russia appears to be legitimately concerned about the possibility of Ukraine building and using a dirty bomb, so much so that it has taken the unprecedented step of reaching out to multiple senior Western defense authorities. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar. <clears throat> My thoughts. Um, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting uh, story. Uh, I am skeptical uh, and and Ritter, I think Ritter is skeptical too, because he goes out of his way to sort of show that the history of dirty bombs has not been imp- very impressive. I mean, uh, Iraq, he says in the, in the 1980s, experimented with a dirty bomb and found that they weren't really so easy to manufacture as all that. And the Israelis apparently also had a uh, a, a program, a development program, and found that dirty bombs just don't work very well. I mean, a dirty bomb, for your listeners, by the way, is a conventional explosive wrapped in radioactive material. So it's, it's not a nuclear explosion. It's a, a regular uh, chemical explosion. But when it goes off, supposedly it spreads radioactive material. Um, but it's just not quite as easy all, as all that and it's a scary term, uh, and I think a certain note of skepticism is warranted here. A couple of things. One, in in uh, with Scott using the words building and using, in this current construct or in this current context, is use really necessary as much as for what the United States is trying to do, which is scare the hell out of everybody and use all of this conflict as a rationale for spending more money on the military-industrial complex, is the threat of this enough right now? And the other question or other part of this, to your knowledge, is it really that rare that the defense minister of one country would be in contact with his counterparts in other countries when a situation like this arises. You know, over history, we, we, we find after conflicts have been resolved that there was more dialogue behind the scenes than we, than, than we understood. And so I'm yeah. wondering, go, so go ahead. Yeah, that, 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 that makes a great deal of sense. Well, as, as Ritter points out, it happened, it happened with some frequency during the, the Syria conflict. Uh, which uh, which uh, erupted from a, from late 2011 uh, well into 2016 2017 where the where you know where the story where the story we got in the in the Western media was that um, that uh, that heroic citizens were rising up against the infinitely cruel regime of uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, and Assad 
because he's really an evil guy backed by the even more evil Vladimir Putin, was you know, regularly raining down poison gas on, on uh, his opponents. Um, so, um, but of course, the reality was very different. The, uh, the, the anti-Assad forces were led by al-Qaeda. They were heavily armed by Saudi Arabia and the U.S., um, and the uh, and the poison gas uh, uh, reports were largely made up. But at various points, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Assad was so concerned that he'd be hit with another phony accusation of uh, of a of poison gas use that he did actually like you know, make statements warning that a false flag operation was on the way and for everyone to beware. So that's kind of analogous to what Shoigu is saying today about the prospect of a dirty bomb being deployed in the Ukraine. Well, the other thing is this, and, and I think you have, this has to be taken into account, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Part of it is there are some very unstable forces. When you talk about people with swastikas tattooed all over them, they're not the most stable people on earth by any stretch of the imagination. And here is the possibility that I think we have to have some concern about, that the West, not that I put it above the CIA or MI6 to do such a thing as a dirty bomb, but let's just say for the sake of argument, they're not involved. When they say if X happened, we would have to act, right? Yeah. Well, these Nazis here, oh, if X happens, we need you to get involved. How do we make X happen? And that's the yeah. concern, I think, that th- that is a healthy concern. Your thoughts, Dan? Well, that was exactly what happened in Syria. I mean, and I mean, I mean, uh, uh, in August 2013, I believe it was Barack Obama said, uh, he would not intervene in Syria unless uh, the Assad regime crossed a red line by using poison gas. Well, aha! So <laughs> immediately a light bulb went off above the heads of the of Al Qaeda and said, "Okay, you know, how do we make it look like Assad is using poison gas?" Um, and a lot of incidents were then staged uh, to make it seem that way. And and frankly, the. Um, the the use of the uh, of the bombing of the of the um, Nord Stream uh, pipeline falls into the same category, where um, essentially uh, the U.S. I mean, to me, it's really obvious it's who blew it up. The U.S. is the prime suspect, to say the least. But the U.S. sort of says that you know, well, of course, Russia blew it up because we can know if any bad thing happens, it's got to be Russia's fault. So therefore, the U.S. believes that it has a free reign to do whatever it wants, knowing that it can safely blame Russia and it'll be echoed by the press. So, um, so I think that, that that is a legitimate fear here as well that the U.S. feels it can sort of you know conduct some kind of atrocity uh, like that. And, and safely blame it on Russia and therefore to be kind of an element of psychological warfare and, the, uh, and, and Russia will, so- will suffer the consequences. That's certainly a possibility. I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. The Russians have reason to be concerned. This is the, 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 the classic U.S. modus operandi. Uh, I, but I still am I'm, I'm, I'm highly skeptical merely because – uh, dirty bombs just don't work very well. If we take this out of the dirty bomb arena and just put it in the larger context of peace talks, peace negotiations, or just sensible conversation, it it seems as though the United States 
is still incredibly reluctant to have constructive dialogue with their Russian counterparts. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, 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 and <laughs> we can't, in spite of how much screaming and yelling Europe does, and they're going to be the ones immediately impacted by all of this, uh, what does that say to you about American policy? Uh, it's incredibly hard line. Incredibly hard line. I mean, essentially, the U.S. is uh, is taking a very hard line rejectionist uh, approach, where it essentially, you know, rules all negotiations out of order. Uh, Thirty members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus just signed a very, a very, you know, weakly worded mm-hmm. letter calling for negotiations, and they were quickly slapped down by the Ukrainians. And of course, they were so timid they they quickly apologized and assured everybody of their of their loyalty to the uh, no, to, to the to the pro-ukrainian fight but but the, but the us is opposed to any kind of, of of break in this united front against the code negotiations and in favor of war and they and the us is you know through stunts like the attack on the on nord stream uh, are you know are are really doing their best to ratchet up the conflict and to raise the stake. Let me ask you this, Dan. You know, they're about to have this big strike in France. Um, the uh, British economy is circling the drain. We see, um, I saw reports that uh, Emmanuel Macron is talking to the Pope saying, hey, how about you call, you know, Putin and Biden and Zelensky and start trying to get people together? I don't know. Orban's like, we're out of here. And no, yeah, we're getting about, had about enough with this EU stuff. It, I, how much longer? Let me say this. It's, we're talking about a, a potential false flag. It's very dangerous, partially because the neocons in Washington, D.C. clearly recognize just before the midterms and their co- coalition is crumbling. It doesn't look like it has a lot of life yet. Put that stuff together and make sense of it, Dan Lazar. Yeah, yeah. I, I buy your logic. I think your concerns are absolutely correct. I mean, I think that 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 support public support for the war is wavering. Uh, it's wavering very strongly in Europe, and it's beginning to waver here in the U.S. We'll have a better idea uh, after the midterms, because clearly, uh, I, I, those who you know, vote for the Republicans will essentially be a vote against the war, or at least a a, a vote in favor of skepticism regarding the war. Um, but I agree that, that, that some kind of atrocity would be, you know, would be manna from heaven uh, in terms of marshalling public uh, opinion behind this conflict. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, so, uh, so it's not impossible. I mean, uh, we'll just have to, have to watch, wait and watch and see. But certainly uh, it's, it's better to, to, be, to be forewarned and to have all these, uh, these concerns out in the open. And we have uh, Russia calling on U.N. Chief Antonio Gutierrez to do everything he can to prevent Ukraine from carrying out a dirty bomb provocation. And we know that the United States, for all intents and purposes, runs the U.N. So we're, other than a, between a rock and a hard place, where does Antonio Gutierrez find himself? Well, I mean, if I was Gutierrez, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's worth a phone call. <laughs> I mean, I would certainly, I would certainly call up uh, uh, Zelensky and the re- and the and the relevant Western actors. 
uh, and say, you know, hey, uh, fellas, uh, you know, let's hope nothing like this happens and it's not a good idea. And let's and let's be, you know, let's try to be rational about about all this. But, of course, the U.S. will react in a fury uh, if the uh, if the U.N. does anything uh, along those lines. Dan, I think um, we're looking at a time where it's obvious that the initial RAND recommendations that people talk about from 2019 when they talked about how to use, when the Pentagon talked about how to use Ukraine to destabilize Russia, that that is what this is. They do not want peace. They do not want it to end. They don't care about Ukrainian lives. Clearly, Dan, they are cannon fodder for the neocon project. I I think it's getting clearer every day. The more they reject any hope for peace, that makes it clearer. Dan, am I overstating things? Well, let me add one more. Let me add one more thing to that, because now you have over the last day or two, the 101st Airborne saying we're here. We're not we're not here for exercises. We're here to fight. Oh, you might want to know they've actually been there since June. They're just starting to do the PR thing. on No, them no. Yeah. But I'm just saying that yeah. they're saying that they're saying that now. Dan. Yes. And in 1997's big Brzezinski, uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, former national security advisor, uh, the guy who was the engineer of U.S. intervention in Afghanistan um, and also was probably one of the, the most influential figures in, in U.S. foreign policy uh, in, the, in the entire post-war period. In 97, he wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard, in which he called for breaking up Russia into three component parts in order to, get, in order to weaken it, to turn it into a, a, a semi-colony of the U.S., to eliminate it as a, as a military power forevermore, and also to open up uh, Central Asia, the former, you know, the former Soviet Central Asia, uh, open it up into U, uh, to U.S. corporate uh, exploitation, essentially mining, oil drilling, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there's there's no doubt that 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 idea is on the back of the mind of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And I might add that if they ever succeeded in that, they would then use it as a springboard uh, for the uh, to, to penetrate uh, Western China, i.e. Xinjiang, Tibet, et cetera, uh, in order for the, with the ultimate goal of doing the same thing to the Chinese state. Dan Lazar is an investigative journalist and author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Progressives in the House of Representatives wrote a letter to President Biden recommending that diplomacy be added as a tool, along with weapons for war, to address the Ukraine crisis. However, within hours, the group backed down from their request. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show. Carlin, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. 
So, two stories. Number one, progressives in U.S. call in U.S. House call for proactive diplomatic push for Ukraine uh, ceasefire. I read the story and the article, the the, uh, the letter, and to be quite frank, I wasn't impressed. And of course, within hours, thirty U.S. Democratic lawmakers U turn within hours after urging Biden to change tack on Ukraine. Your thoughts, Mark Laboda. Yeah, so uh, within a few hours of, of issuing this letter, uh, evidently uh, the Biden administration and uh, Nancy or Nancy Pelosi or some combination of the two uh, put the screws uh, to these uh, uh, this congressional progressive caucuses, and they dutifully put their tail between their legs and completely reversed their position. Um, they said, uh, we are unequivocal commitments of supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom, by which they must mean state armed and funded neo-Nazi battalions terrorizing the population, the, um, banning of 15 opposition parties representing the entirety of the population of East Ukraine and, uh, the, uh, uh, government seizing control of all media under the, in the country and under one unit fight energy policy, otherwise known as democracy and freedom. Um, so um, they, that, that's what they support. Nothing in the letter advocates change in that support. Okay, that makes it clear. And uh, as we also explicitly make clear in our letter, we will continue to make clear we support. Uh, can we make clear once again? We support President <laughs> Biden and his administration's commitment to nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. I, I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but but definitely they're back to kowtowing and towing the line to the Biden administration. So uh, that 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 political moment of independence lasted a few whole hours. And it's interesting that that brief moment of political independence was consistent with the polling of not only Democrats and progressives, but of the American people overall. Americans are war weary. Americans are getting to the point of being sick of this Ukraine conversation. And they once again snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, I, I, let me add one other thing before you before your comment, Mark. And there is a, a bunch of videos online of AOC at some town hall thing she was doing, and she was getting heckled, and people were saying, you have become what you said you were coming here to fight. They're getting heat, and they and they wrote this mealy ma- The first letter wasn't hitting on much in the first place, to be quite frank. Mark? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, uh, like you said, I wasn't impressed with the uh, substance of the first uh, letter, but at least they mentioned the word diplomacy, which seems to be, uh, equit- uh, you know, equated in the neo-McCarthyite atmosphere of Washington and the Western media to to uh, uh, a Putin agent, Putin apologia, Putin, you know, um, fluff or not or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, what we, uh, you know, have seen, uh, in, in in response, they've simply reversed course and they say, then diplomacy is just one tool. Well, I, I, I guess, you know, diplomacy on, on one hand and uh, 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 multiple launch rocket systems on the other. I mean, they're, they're, they're practically the same thing, at, at least according to the, you know, the reversal in the statement. But, yeah, we've seen polls showing that over 50 percent uh, of the American people would prefer the, the U.S. government to be making some type of diplomatic uh, effort rather than continuing the the, uh, uh, you know, a continuous flow of 
arms to the Kiev regime. And I think that this is what this moment was all about, uh, trying, mo trying more for re-election than any serious opposition uh, to the Biden uh, regime's foreign policy. Uh, and um, uh, it, the, you know, the polls are, are pretty clear that the American people would like the U.S. government to push for a diplomatic effort. But at the same time, a country that is providing a continuous flow of arms, funds propping up the regime, C4 ISR, you know, uh, CIA agents um, directing things from the battlefield, uh, none of that is conducive towards the U.S. actually being capable of pushing for a, a diplomatic settlement between uh, Russia and the regime in Kiev anyway. Uh, a serious effort would have to be turning off the flow of money coming from Washington, D.C., and hence the flow of arms. But uh, there's no sign of that happening. And even their opposite numbers on the other side, the Republicans are only talking about accountability uh, and and not any serious curtailment. I see broad bipartisan support. And uh, I, if anything, I think this stomping down of any opposition uh, from from the, the progressive caucus within a number of hours shows the tight control uh, that that Biden has of of uh, foreign policy um, opinion in Washington, D.C. 101st Airborne deployed to Ukraine's border, ready to fight tonight. A commander said, this is not a training deployment. This is a contra uh, combat deployment, Mark Sloboda. Yeah, um, so I mean, the 101st Airborne, I mean, it's not like they just arrived on scene. They've they've been there for a period of time so far, but suddenly a great deal is being made out of them. And when you have a public statement like that, that is is not a you know an accident. This was uh, something that was clearly scripted and a message being sent. And furthermore, CBS went on to make the very specific point that Russia is intending on seizing Odessa, which they haven't actually made any moves towards so far, although I think it likely that they would within the next year, assuming the conflict continues, uh, and that, um, that Russia – um, would uh, attempt to deprive the Kiev regime of its last major port on the Black Sea by doing this. Bringing this up in the specific context of the 101st Airborne and their quick deployability as light infantry uh, makes me believe that this was a message clearly being sent um, uh, because they talked about the context that, that the 101st Airborne would engage in combat with Russians. One, Russia invades Romania. Okay, I think we could all agree that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, the other one is an escalation from uh, in in the con uh, Russian escalation. What what type of escalation are they talking about? That's undefined. But let's let's say a, a dirty bomb goes off and it's blamed on Russia. Uh, that would provide exactly the sort of of pretext and escalation. I believe it's very possible that the U.S. and Poland may be making contingency plans for a possible uh, direct intervention in the conflict at some point in time, maybe outside uh, of of the 
the rest of NATO as some type of coalition of the willing and sending the 101st Airborne in as a as a you know effective human tripwire uh, to uh, into Odessa to prevent uh, or seek to prevent Russia from uh, moving on the Russian speaking Russian leaning city that has been politically repressed uh, by the Kiev regime since 2014 is a, a kind of a nightmare scenario. Here's something that's interesting. Um, Emmanuel Macron, you know, they've got strikes happening any day. France seems to be falling apart. The U.K. seems to be uh, economically crashing. Um, And uh, 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 Chancellor Schultz says Ukraine conflict must not escalate into direct Russian-NATO confrontation. Emmanuel Macron now is asking the um, asking the pope, I believe it is, to make some phone calls. It is clear that there are there there are issues with support in the um, coalition. I, in a way, I think that makes it more dangerous because the neocons are looking, saying, oh, no, this thing's falling apart. We better do something stupid before it's too late. That's my terms. But your thoughts, Mark? Yeah. It, at, at the same time, we saw the uh, German president uh, Steinmeier in Kiev today uh, promising unwavering support uh, economically, um, militarily, uh, politically, uh, for the Kiev regime, um, and we saw the um, the government push to increase the the government in uh, Berlin push to increase uh, the amount of aid directly going to Kiev to 1.2 billion for next year, on top of the 50 billion that that the Biden administration is now trying to push through Congress. So, um, you know, there there may be some voices of disgruntlement, particularly from the street, uh, but the political elites appear set on their course uh, going into the winter. And that doesn't portend well for them uh, with this being projected to be one of the coldest winters uh, of recent note. And the 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 protests just seem to be growing every weekend well i mean i mean there is a a ray of hope i think because even though um the um uh, european governments have made clear that they don't want russian gas they don't want russian oil and they don't want russian coal um, the uh, Russian, the former Russian president, head of the Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, has suggested that Russia could still sell them wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and really quickly, Garland, as as uh, Schultz has been saying that the conflict must be prevented from escalating, he's still sending support, military support, to the Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. I this there's this fiction going on where I mean the West thinks that they can provide all of this military aid all you know Russian troops dying at the hands of weapons they've provided the intelligence the battle plans they are war gaming out with their the CIA and European commandos ad admitted by the Washington Post on the ground directing things and then they can say you know we're not in direct conflict with Russia all right that's just uh, but Mark, species. Mark, you got to keep it in <laughs> mind. But Russia is using drones that look like Iranian drones. They they may or may not have gotten a, uh, Iranian drones, but that means that the Iranians are a direct party. They're saying the Iranians are a direct party because there may be drones. 
that are uh, that are Iranian drones involved in the conflict? Maybe not. But providing targeting people on the ground, weapons, boots, money, all of that. That certainly not doesn't make them a party to the conflict, Mark. Because that's different when we do it. Oh, I mean, that's that's clear with, with, with the actual situation with Iran is, well, Iran had provided a design uh, and the rights to manufacture it to Russia and Russia is domestically producing it uh, and ramping up production rather quickly. These drones are incredibly cheap uh, and it fills a, a useful capability, uh, you know, uh, that that adds significantly to Russia's existing drone and loitering munition uh, arsenal. But the fact that the U.S. declares, you know, Iran providing this design and the rights to Russia to make their own makes them a direct party to the conflict. But with everything that the West is providing wholesale and saying that Russia must be defeated on the battlefield, that does not make them a direct party to the conflict. I don't even think the American people believe that type of nonsense. I, I would hope not. I would hope you were correct. That's Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is still discussing the possibility of defending the Taiwanese province from its homeland. Also, President Xi has been renewed as the leader of China after an extremely successful economic and cultural improvement during his tenure. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start with this. Vietnam's Communist Party chief to be the first foreign leader to visit China after the 20th Congress. Nyong Phu Trong's arrival on Sunday comes as Vietnam and the U.S. are in talks over strengthening ties. Well, you know, here's the first thing I thought of. I'll throw this at you, um, uh, uh, um, KJ, and that is I remember when Donald Trump went to Vietnam. And he came back and he said, it was a beautiful country. Their economy is roaring. They, they, they seem to be doing well. And then his cohorts reminded him that it was run by the Communist Party and it's a socialist country. And he just kind of shut it all down. Your thoughts on all of that, KJ No. Well, what Vietnam is doing is it's copying China's model. That is, it's using uh, a market socialism almost uh, directly, you know, copying what China did. And as a result, it's roaring, it's doing well, it's, you know, expanding in leaps and bounds. And this is generally the case for socialist economies in general. If they are, if the artificial pressures of war and sanctions are removed, uh, every single time they will beat uh, capitalist economies, uh, hands down. And we know that by looking at the countries that were formerly colonized. Uh, and then became developed countries. You know, the, really the only ones that have become developed outside of the capitalist show ponies that were given special treatment, like South Korea and Taiwan, are the socialist state. So that's uh, kind of a given. It's just common sense. And it's just that we're so mystified and misled about that. But regarding the visit itself, remember that Kamala Harris and also, um, you know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd visited Vietnam and they were trying to kind of 
uh, press gang or bully or cajole the Vietnamese into coming over onto their side. Clearly, it doesn't seem to have worked. Wang Yi visited the Vietnamese. Uh, 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 Wang Yi visited uh, the prime minister and the foreign minister earlier, uh, and he made a, a lot of promises that he will most likely keep. Among them, deliver, delivering COVID vaccines, and there's been this kind of string of high-level visits uh, after the previous Congress. She himself after the 19th National Conference, she himself visited Vietnam. And so this is the Vietnamese simply returning the favor after the 20th National Conference. Uh, their general secretary of the CPV is visiting the, the general secretary of the CPC. And it speaks to the strength uh, and the consolidation of their relationships, which will, I think, continue from strength to strength. And it signals once again that the ASEAN countries, but in particular Vietnam, are not that enamored of the U.S. escalation to war against China. There are those, and when you read the, the subtitle or one of the bullets under under the uh, the title, it says that um, that the, that Trong's arrival comes as Vietnam and the U.S. are in talks over strengthening ties. And there are some that will see this as the relationships have to be either or. They can't be both and. And I think what both China and Vietnam are showing is because the focus, I think, of their relationships are economic and other things besides militarism, they can be both and. While the United States tries to tries to be much more exclusionary than inclusionary. You're absolutely correct. The U.S. doctrine is you're with us, against us. They want to form blocks. And China and Vietnam and many countries uh, simply want win-win. Uh, one relationship does not exclude another. And it's clear that China is managing its differences well with Vietnam. And Vietnam is China's biggest trade partner. It's about 30 percent uh, of Vietnam's trade is with China. So it all speaks to this kind of well-managing of the diplomatic relationship as well as the strengthening of economic uh, ties, uh, as we can see through the RCEP and the reform and opening up process. You know, there's a, a, a number of other things we want to talk about, but I did want to ask you about this. There's a, a trope going around that um, the that Hu Jintao was apparently I hope I'm pronouncing it right was was dragged you know I mean you hear you you, you hear the, the the rhetoric you know it sounds as though that he was you know dragged out and beaten by Praetorian guards at the uh, at the at the the uh, the the the, the, uh, the party meetings in China um, can you give us what are your thoughts on what happened and the rhetoric that's been um, put forth around it well you know it's simply absurd it's that kind of cinematic technique where you isolate everything, remove all the context, and then you bear down really tight with the camera, slow things down, and heighten emphasize. And under those circumstances, everything looks weird and strange and suspect. It's, you know, there's a term for it. The Russian term is ostanienye. Uh, I think in theater it's called an alienation effect. But they're using an alienation effect uh, to create this, uh, you know, suspicion or suspicious uh, uh, narrative that Hu Jintao was, uh, you know, reluctantly dragged away just before the final vote, and he's probably, you know, going to be found in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> Complete and absolute nonsense. I've watched it. If you watch Hu Jintao 
being escorted in uh, into the the room, you'll see that he needs a lot of help. He needs a lot of prompting. He's a gentleman who is elderly. He's senile. He needs help. And he was probably under some distress. So they uh, prompted him to leave and they did the same thing. And I talked over this with uh, people who work, uh, experts who work with senile people. And they say this is classical behavior. There's nothing there. This is simply how you have to talk and how you have to prompt uh, elderly individuals who are senile. And the response both of the individual and the people around him is also exactly what you would expect. There's a uh, piece in Asian Times shakeup at the top of China's Communist Party as Xi Jinping starts new term. I would think that this is just the practical realities of new times sometimes require new input, new direction, new perspective. Exactly. I mean, you know, this it's been five years since the last party congress. And so there is uh, a shakeup. There is a changing of the guard. Some people have retired because China has a uh, retirement age around 68 or so. It depends on the individual and what their own proclivities are. But yes, there is a shakeup. There is a little changing of the guard. There are some new, fresh blood, some younger people involved. Uh, and also, you know, the key person to note is Li Qiang, who uh, most people expect is replacing Li Keqiang. Uh, and he is the former Shanghai party chief. Um, sorry, the Shanghai is the Shanghai party chief. Um, uh, party chief. He's an NDA. And that goes against the grain where everybody says, well, you know, Xi Jinping is, you know, going back to, you know, kind of primitive communism and, and he's, you know, going to destroy the market. Well, his number two and probably most likely the PM uh, will be a person who is versed with uh, foreign investment, reform and opening up uh, and technological advancement, which, you know, he has demonstrated ably with uh, Shanghai itself. And he, his background is, is, is in business, which is very unusual for uh, China. Most of the leading uh, uh, you know, uh, heads of the Chinese government are actually engineers and scientists. You know, that's one thing I find interesting. I'll get you to comment on that. And that is when you look at, for instance, Emmanuel Macron, you know, former banker with Rothschild, you look at um, uh, 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 Rishi Sunak, former banker with Goldman Sachs. You have a bunch of neoliberal people who worked in, you know, in uh, investments and, and you know, uh, asset-backed securities and things of that nature in the West. And when you look at China, you see people who are of uh, uh, scientific or, you know, uh, backgrounds where pra- practical application of principles was the um, was their specialty. What do you do? You have any thoughts on that? Well, it shows why the Chinese are, you know, pulling ahead because you have scientists and engineers who are trained to think critically, who are trained to think hard, who are trained not to abstract themselves away from reality, but to constantly be uh, tested by reality. So they have theories and they test their theories and the theories are either provable or disprovable. But either way, this allows a high level of scientific and critical thinking. That's why everybody in the Chinese leadership, you know, there's no question about global warming. There's no question about environmental, uh, you know, the need to, to, to do environmental work. Whereas, for example, in the U.S. Congress, you know, what is it, one third, one half of the Congress people don't even think that 
uh, global, you know, climate change is even a thing. And so I think this speaks to the difference. When you have lawyers and businessmen and especially failed or avaricious business people leading a government versus when you have scientists and engineers who are grounded in dialectics and systems theory, then you're going to get a completely different system and add to that, um, you know, a mandate or a, a deep belief that they have to serve the people, that they have to create common prosperity, then you're going to get much, much better outcomes, such as the end of poverty, you know, constantly increasing uh, life expectancy, the increase in height, increase in health all around, as opposed to the constant breaking down and the immiseration and the suffering that you see in Europe and, yes, here in the United States. There's an interesting piece in Asia Times, U.S.-Pacific Pact Renewal Crucial for Defending Taiwan. And it opens by saying the Russian invasion of Ukraine has heightened concerns that a Taiwan contingency involving the PRC could play out in the not-too-distant future. Well, that premise is false because Russia didn't invade Ukraine. And I'm still trying to figure out who they're trying to protect Taiwan against because I've never heard anybody in China say they want to invade Taiwan. Absolutely. The Chinese want peaceful reunification under one country, two systems. They said that over and over again. They reemphasized this at the 20th Party Congress, and they've been saying it, you know, for the past two decades. So, I mean, there's nothing new here. I think this is Anthony Blinken trying to provoke, once again, some kind of kinetic response from China, uh, trying to create some kind of provocation that will allow the rest of the world or the rest of, quote, unquote, the free world to bandwagon against China and impose sanctions, as they have planned out in infinite detail in the Taiwan Policy Act. You know, this preparation of sanctions, preparation essentially of turning Taiwan into a militarized U.S. base with a rotational U.S. presence, a rotational U.S. presence and the placing of U.S. Uh, staffers inside Taiwan's government. Essentially, they're turning it back into an imperial outpost. When you do that, that is a huge red line that they're crossing. And so they're trying to create, uh, you know, the prepare the ideological ground by saying somehow that, you know, China is being threatening and therefore they have to do these things. Upside down, backwards, it's completely, uh, you know, inverted. You know, it's the U.S., which wants to provoke some kind of quote-unquote Taiwan contingency, the Chinese have time on their side. And not only that, but the vast majority of the Taiwanese want the status quo. This is why the Taiwan Policy Act actually talks about monitoring, i.e., you know, taking measures against people who are opposed to the measures included in the TPA. It's quite extraordinary. K.J. No is a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Rishi Sunak has taken over as prime minister in the U.K., and the king has requested that the Conservative Party form a new government. Joining us to discuss this, we have Wyatt Reed. Wyatt is a Sputnik News analyst. Wyatt, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So Rishi Sunak becomes a U.K. prime minister. He's taken office. Uh, He met with King Charles III on Tuesday, immediately after the monarch formally accepted the resignation of his predecessor, Liz Liz Truss. As is customary, the king has formally requested that Conservative Party leader Sunak form a government. What do we need to know about this stuff, Uh, uh, Wyatt Reed? You're over there across the pond. Fill us in. That's right. Rishi Sunak officially became the new prime minister of the United Kingdom today. He had his first official address at number 10 Downing Street. He said that he has taken the top job and now it is fallen to him to fix what he called the mistakes made by Liz Truss, who was his incredibly unpopular predecessor. She left office just days ago with a 10 percent approval rating. Now, Mr. Sunak says that, quote, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. This is due to factors such as COVID and what he called Putin's war in Ukraine, which he claimed has destabilized energy markets and supply chains the world over. No word, of course, on the sanctions imposed by the European Union on Russian exports like energy and fertilizer. Uh, But that is a matter for another time. And Mr. Sunak also claimed that, quote, the government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. So this is being taken as kind of the first hint that in office he will be seeking to raise taxes and impose austerity measures. And already the hashtag Rishi out has begun trending on social media. That happened within just minutes of the news that Mr. Johnson, Boris Johnson, the predecessor of Mistrust, would not go ahead and challenge Sunak and thus allow him to become prime minister. Um, so this morning, Zara Sultana, a labor member of parliament, issued an address in which she called Sunak totally unfit to be prime minister. And she said that he effectively shows the limitations of representation politics. She went on to say that, quote, having black and brown people at the top does not mean that the lives of black and brown people in the UK will be better. In fact, they have gotten worse. Now, of course, Rishi Sunak is of Indian descent and establishment media of the West has been heralding his appointment here as the first prime minister of color in the United Kingdom. But uh, to many observers, he's more somebody who's defined by his wealth than by his race. He is by far the wealthiest member of parliament. Him and his wife, <clears throat> him and his wife combined are estimated to be worth over $800 million dollars. Um, And this background goes all the way back to his education at the uh, elite Winchester College, which is a boarding school that costs over $50,000 a year. He went to university at Oxford 
And then his career began with uh, three years at Goldman Sachs. And uh, that's, you know, frequently been described as uh, uh, one of the most hated banks in the world. So uh, after that, he spent time at multiple hedge funds uh, before beginning his political career. And in terms of what that political career will mean um, for for people in the UK, uh, well, there was a video that came out just in August in which Mr. Sunak was speaking to his wealthier supporters in private. And he said that, quote, we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party and shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas that needed to be undone. I started work on undoing that. So that uh, may give you a sense of, of his priorities when he, uh, you know, here going forward uh, as prime minister of the United Kingdom. That statement, along with the um, with the other other statements that, that you made, uh, the austerity statements, coupled with his ethnicity, makes me wonder: Is this the Obamatization of British politics? And also, he's uh, seems to have dismissed all of uh, or most of uh, Liz Truss's aides, and he's bringing in his whole crew that he's worked with from his previous cabinet job as chancellor of the Exchequer. Is it expected by his doing that that there's really going to be substantive policy difference between him and Liz Truss? I don't know how substantive that'll they'll be. Uh, he has kept on figures like Jeremy Hunt as his chancellor. Uh, he is, you know, keeping the same person in response uh, who's responsible for the budget, um, the same person that uh, Liz Truss had. Um, he has kept on Ben Wallace as the defense secretary, who was the defense secretary for both Boris Johnson and Ms. Truss, and who... Say, said publicly that he would uh, not accept the job unless uh, Mr. Sunak committed to spending 3% of the GDP on defense by 2030. Uh, so, you know, in the kind of most substantive arenas, it certainly seems that he plans on continuing the status quo. But in terms of the Obamatization of of British politics, that's definitely a theme that we're hearing from uh, a number of commentators, a number, especially on social media, um, especially among those who are not white. There's definitely a sense that there's a common thread here in that while his arrival to Downing Street is being described in establishment media as a victory for all Indians, for all people of color, just like how Obama's presidency was treated as a victory for all black people. Uh, When you look into his life, it seems that he spent a greater effort, greater time trying to kind of gain access to this elite, largely white club of the ruling class, way more so than he spent trying to uplift the community he came from. So, you know, on one level, I, I think you're right on the money. And he's certainly far more of a charismatic and far more of a competent politician than Liz Truss was. 
Um, and and I think there is kind of a, a, there's some reality here that uh, by any sort of objective measure, she was far more qualified than Liz does. But, you know, the conservatives in the UK do have a pretty racist strain there. And I think uh, there were many of them that didn't necessarily want to be represented uh, by a man like Mr. Sunak, um, there was a, a pretty notorious call on uh, leading Britain's conversation um, in which uh, he was described as uh, in pretty racist terms. He said, a caller said that, he, you know, Sunak isn't even British in most people's opinion. He made some comparison to Al Qaeda. And I think that strain of, of racism certainly is present. Um, but but his value in many ways, I think, for the ruling class will be that he can um, kind of use that in terms of, of portraying himself as this underdog and this kind of uh, unifying figure and, and really kind of, uh, you know, in a more insidious way, I think, be more effective in some sense um, in terms of winning over other segments of British society to this neoliberal austerity agenda. Now, let me ask you about this. I understand uh, that Rishi Sunak is a very, very wealthy man. In fact, possibly and maybe even likely the wealthiest person, at least in modern times, to ever hold the position as the UK prime minister. What do you know about that, Wyatt? Well, that's right. He is the wealthiest man in parliament. And by far, his net worth combined with his wife is something like two times the uh, the net worth of the of the last British queen, I believe, um, close to a billion dollars. And that's just what we know about publicly. Um, his wife, uh, Ashgrada uh, Murthy, was basically an Indian tech heiress. Um, her father is, is a man named Narayana Murthy, who's frequently called the Bill Gates of India. And she has a 0.91 stake in that company that is worth somewhere around 700 million pounds. And she has been at the center of kind of a firestorm of criticism that was, oh, this was kicking off. And the past leadership contest earlier this year um, which, you know, when it was revealed that uh, that his wife is what's known as a non-domiciled UK resident, which means that for an annual charge of just 30,000 pounds, she was able to skip out on a on a responsibility for over 20 million pounds of UK taxes. And that is, you know, I think in many ways kind of speaks for itself. It sort of speaks for the general agenda going forward, you know, taxes for thee, but not for me. And I think this is kind of an idea that's generally behind austerity measures whenever they're implemented is that usually you'll find that those who are happiest to implement them are going to be those who are least affected. Those who are happiest to implement them are going to be the least affected. That doesn't sound, particularly with the economy going in the direction that it is, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a formula for success. <laughs> well, no, and this is part of the reason I think he's been so reticent to come out and publicly 
describe his plans. You know, a lot of this is is, is really, you know, he he has almost refused to to nail down, you know, anything that he would do or not do. Um, his Brexit plans. Um, I mean, it's just kind of a whole lot of hot air. He uh, has hasn't said really anything that that he will or won't do. Um, you're really at this point kind of reading tea leaves, trying to figure out what exactly is in store for working Brits. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, this is part of kind of a broader program now where he is basically this kind of technocratic figure who's seen as, uh, at the very least competent. And he's, you know, especially coming after this bumbling Liz Truss, uh, he will be probably afforded a bit more leeway by the public and he will have a significantly greater amount of latitude, I would guess, in order to implement this agenda and just being more charismatic and more competent. Um, I think he'll have more success in implementing it, uh, you know, his his um, policies in that sense as well. Um, obviously, time will tell, but just going from the appointments that we've seen so far and going from what very little uh, we have heard from in terms of, of the policy proposals, again, uh, it doesn't look terribly great for the poorest in British society. You listen to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. We were talking with Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik analyst. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A new West Bank resistance group called the Lion's Den is rewriting the rules of engagement with Israel. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me once more. TheCradle.com reports on 11th of October, Palestinian gunman killed an Israeli soldier near the illegal Jewish settlement of Shavay Shamran, west of the city of Nablus in the occupied West Bank. On the same day, masked men opened fire on four other Israeli targets on the outskirts of the city. A total of five operations were carried out in one day, reportedly by the recently established resistance faction called the Lion's Den, Arin al-Osud, who claimed responsibility for them. Laith Maruf, what do we need to know? Oh, this is a very important story, of course. Uh, right now, there's more than a hundred armed attacks on the Zionist uh, checkpoints and colonies in the West Bank in the last uh, month, which is a very drastic number. And it tells you right now that we are in the midst of a, an armed rebellion in the West Bank. Much of the cities like Nablus, where uh, Arin al-Usud or the Lions, then a group have uh, formed, uh, are out of control of both the Palestinian Authority uh, security forces that are collaborating with the Zionists and the uh, Israeli military forces. And uh, as 
We spoke about this a few times on the show uh, as it developed the story. We have a lot of uh, high school and university students that are leading these uh, new armed groups. Uh, and they are a cross uh, polarized from all the various uh, Palestinian political forces. So you have members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hamas, members of the uh, Aqsa Martyrs Brigades that are uh, Fatah, that are young, uh, all working together with the PLFP youth. And uh, they're kind of uh, uh, forming a unification of uh, struggle on the ground, this new generation, without going back to the upper, uh, older generation, especially in Fatah. This is where it's surprising for everybody to see the Fatah youth uh, kind of breaking off from the uh, security forces collaboration and the leadership of uh, Mahmoud Abbas. So this is a very serious situation. We haven't seen something like this in 20 years in the West Bank. It's very interesting, and I think this follows kind of the historical uh, context of struggle. If we go back to the civil rights movement and the established organizations such as the SCLC or uh, some of the others, or the NAACP, and then you had uh, you had the youth, you had the you, you had SNCC. You you had the Black Panthers, and so the youth become incredibly impatient with the uh, with the tactics of the older generation, and then they decide to take matters into their own hands. Do you see that being uh, the the methodology or the mentality here? And also in this Cradle article, uh, they say while recognizing the situation in the West Bank is sensitive, Benny Gantz says that eliminating the lion's den whose numbers don't exceed 30 is possible. And then they interview the leader of, or the, the supposed leader of the lion's den, and he says, Gantz will be surprised very soon by our numbers and methods of work. Your thoughts, Laith Maroof. Yeah, I mean, watching the, uh, you know, for, for the first part of your question, okay, uh, clearly the youth of Fatah, uh, who have no out for the, the struggle because of the collaboration uh, of the structures of Fatah with the uh, occupation in the West Bank, are clearly, uh, you know, taking their own path and joining with the rest of the youth around them in this new formation. And I think it was a smart move to create a new vessel uh, that can allow people from no matter what party background, because much of the party affiliations in, in the West Bank uh, is family uh, related. So your father is in Fatah, you're in Fatah. It's not like that you fully support a, a political line, for instance. And so this new formations allowed these uh, youth to uh, you know, surpass this uh, obstacle. And we saw yesterday, and that's something we will talk about later, uh, that the fruits of this on the ground in Nablus. So on the, in terms of the second part of your question, uh, watching the Israeli media over the last uh, 24 hours, it was amazing to see uh, all these uh, intelligence officers and members of the Israeli military and security forces and, uh, warning that the more 
the Zionist attack the lions then and and try to assassinate uh, these youth. The more is actually galvanizing the population around them, you know, to go and try to assassinate one of these youth in the old city of Jenin or the old city of Nablus, it means an incursion deep into the territory uh, in the midst of a civilian population. And it, uh, as we saw, as these different, uh, there has been, you know, multiple people that have been killed from the lions then and or the group that is in Jenin, uh, their funerals are humongous. This is numbers that we haven't seen, uh, you know, people driving from other towns and villages in the West Bank to come to the funerals and or uh, come to the aid when the uh, attacks happen from the Zionist colony. And, and this is exactly what the Zionists are worried about. And Benigans and uh, Lapid, uh, because they are worried about an election that's going to happen in the next week or so in in the Zionist colony, they're trying to prove they are, uh, you know, tough on the uppity, basically. And unfortunate for them, the more they do that, as their own security forces are telling them, it is actually uh, strengthening the resistance in the West Bank. So let me ask you two things. Um, there was an attack on the lion's den, uh, they allegedly, supposedly killing six. That's one of uh, one of the things. But the, also, I want to ask you about Uday Tamimi and does what happened with him play into this um, dynamic at all? Yeah. So Uday Tamimi's uh, assassination clearly, uh, you know, strengthened and increased the speed of operations of uh, all these new formed groups like the Lions then in Nablus. Uh, and uh, we saw over the last 24 hours, as you mentioned in your uh, other article that you quoted, all these multiple attacks and it's uh, continuing uh, on, on, a, on a, you know, on multiple checkpoints across the whole West Bank. So the the actual Israeli army right now has deployed half of its capabilities on the ground in the West Bank. This has been unprecedented since uh, the Second Intifada in the uh, beginnings of the year 2000. So right now, you know, uh, if a battle starts with Gaza and or a battle starts with Hezbollah from Lebanon or Syria, as the continuous attacks happen on it, the uh, is Zionist military forces are dispersed over the West Bank and they will be in a real bind, uh, you know, to try to fight on a multiple forces if they can't even take down uh, these uh, youth. There's a piece in Popular Resistance, the non-West coalesces, nations representing more than 80% of the global population and a like percentage of global gross domestic product are capable of seeing the Biden administration's provocations and do not approve. Uh, the longer the Biden administration stays in office, it seems as though the larger the coalition uh, grows and the greater the resistance to American hegemony uh, is developing. Yes, I mean, look, uh, 20 years ago when the United States uh, went on a rampage, uh, starting with the war on, on Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth and so forth, the 
racist and, uh, you know, openly supremacist and openly imperialist language of George Bush, uh, W. Bush, uh, there was nobody attempting even to uh, speak back at it because people were in fear where the, the Soviet Union had collapsed. There's this vacuum. And the West went on this crusade in the Muslim and Arab countries and, and killed millions, as we saw. Today, we are in a different reality. Uh, there is a emerging China and a clearly emerging Russia and emerging Iran. Uh, just only those three, without even talking about Turkey and or the Saudis or even Venezuela rising or others, Algeria and so forth. These are countries that are now asserting uh, back and we have a world that can see that there is a possibility to speak back at white supremacy on an international scale and uh, not be quashed. Um, also, uh, we had, uh, one of the other things I think is of consequence is what's going on in Syria. Apparently, Syria uh, was attacked again um, in broad daylight yesterday, and there has uh, appears to be a response. Uh, if you could enlighten us on that, uh, Lathe. Yes, yeah, so this is was a very important story also. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, you know, the Zionists attacked the uh, uh, areas around Damascus. Uh, this was a brazing attack in the middle of uh, the daylight. Uh, much of the missiles were shot down. Uh, the, they, they, had, they fired from uh, northern Palestine. Um, this was... Uh, there was only one soldier, Syrian soldier, that injured... Uh, much of those injuries in the Syrian uh, military when the Israelis attack are from soldiers mounting the air defenses, and that's what happened yesterday. One soldier got uh, injured uh, defending the airspace of Syria. Within a few hours, by nightfall, there was an attack on the largest uh, American base in the northeast of Syria, uh, attacks by missiles and mortar shells. There was multiple explosions and fires uh, reported, and the American uh, uh, troops stationed in the base fired back in the uh, vicinity of Al-Mayadeen uh, town of Deir Zor in the open fields. So this uh, shows us that in, um, in the last uh, three or four different attacks that the, the Israelis mounted uh, on Syria, Every time the response has been an attack back at American bases in Syria. So now the Syrian military and resistance groups have solidified this new uh, rule of engagement. When the Israelis attack Syria, it will be the Americans on the ground occupying that will have to bleed. And this is important because, you know, for the 24 hours before uh, this attack yesterday on Syria, it was American AWACS and American intelligence planes that have circled all of Syria's borders for close to 24 hours nonstop uh, surveillance from the air before this attack. So this tells you that the United States is directly involved in these Israeli attacks. And, and many, um, and I'm going to end on this here, many analysts have pointed out that the uh, armed uprising uh, the armed rebellion in the West Bank and the constant attacks on Israelis may be directly related to the attack that uh, the Israelis have conducted on Syria. And this is because it all came, all this armed resistance in the West Bank 
has started following the meetings between uh, the various Palestinian factions, including Hamas and the Syrian government uh, in Damascus last week. Leith Marouf is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is using AFRICOM to defend its neocolonial claims to the natural resources on the African continent. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Tunde Osazoa. Tunde is on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace and coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network. Tunde, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much for having me. Nick Terse, in his article, Keeping an Eye on AFRICOM 10 Years Later, says, What's the U.S. military doing in Africa? It's an enigma wrapped in a riddle, straight jacketed in secrecy and hogtied by red tape, or at least it would be if we're up to the Pentagon. The AFRICOM, what's it all about, Tunde Osazoa? Yeah, um, well, we at the Black Lines for Peace understand that, you know, the purpose of AFRICOM is to use Western military power to impose Western control of African land, resources, and labor um, on behalf of the world's corporate and financial elite. Um, and so, you know, we we believe that, you know, the U.S. Africa commander, AFRICOM, uh, as one of, you know, the 11 U.S. global command structures is, is part of uh, the effort uh, by the United States to practice full-spectrum dominance over the entire continent, the entire African continent. And we know that a, a number of those other global command structures are serving that purpose on uh, other parts of the globe, right, like because the U.S. has divided up the world into these different command structures. So, And, you know, many of the leadership, uh, uh, I guess, forces on the continent are in alignment with the U.S. and the Western powers and have ceded sovereignty or relinquish their sovereignty to the West and to the U.S. settler colonial empire uh, um, and, and allowed for this uh, state of affairs to take place. Um, and so, you know, AFRICOM's over operations and, uh, on the continent over the last decade have included, you know, countless drone strikes, uh, a billion, a billions of dollars of aid and de- development projects, and countless massive military exercises that have also correlated with you know, a large spike, like over 500% spike in incidents of, of, of violence attributed to Islamist extremist organizations. And, and that, that runs counter to AFRICOM's state of mission, which is to promote regional security, stability, and prosperity. Um, but, you know, we know that the U.S. Africa commands nature precludes the development of any of those conditions and really brings about the destabilization of the continent and the furthering of U.S. political interests. And this piece goes on after disasters in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere, the U.S. military and its various commands still occupy at least 750 bases on every continent except Antarctica. And what? And so, really, when you look at the development of Africom, we were sold that whole idea under the pretext of stability on the continent, but all 
the United States has done is brought instability to the continent with what, eight coups in the last year and a half or six coups in the last year and a half? Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, they, all of those coup, coup plotters were trained by AFRICOM, right? They received uh, uh, military training uh, from the U.S. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting, right? Like the, it, the uh, rhetoric of this system includes some sort of unacknowledged uh, assumption, a white supremacist assumption that uh, uh, the international community has a duty to, um, you know, uh, prosecute, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the um, folks who are carrying out these, these coups. But what we understand is that, you know, uh, there's like a rationalization and a justification for, you know, the continued hegemony of the U.S. and the West. And, and that is what allows for, you know, the role of the U.S. and, and, uh, um, uh, and its allies in, in furthering, um, I guess, the, the, the destabilization of these, these countries. And most of those coups were, were in the Sahel. I think we, we saw some others uh, elsewhere. But, uh, you know, a, a large, um, I guess, reason for uh, uh, a lot of that instability is, you know, AFRICOM's uh, um, uh, uh, role in, in the destabilization of Libya and how, you know, there was a, a, a spread of, of the, the um, large amount of weaponry that was, was shipped to the Libyan rebels, how that, those weapons were also put in the, uh, were eventually got in the hands of some of the uh, uh, West African forces. Um, and and that, that has destabilized, you know, a lot of the countries in the Sahel, you know, countries like Burkina Faso, like Mali, uh, uh, like uh, um, many many of the, the countries uh, there, like you know Guinea and 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 others that have had uh, coups, uh, you know Niger, and so I, I think the, this Western militarization right demonstrates that you know the Western neocolonial powers like the U.S. and France are really intensifying the war. I don't know if we all see it as a war, but it's truly a war on the African people and the West military stranglehold on the African continent. And that, that's taking place in, in, in uh, uh, the context of, of, of what we are calling like a new scramble for Africa, because, you know, forces like the U.S. and the West are in competition with, with uh, I guess, you know, China, Russia, you know, Turkey and, and others. And, and so, you know, we, we see that, you know, what, what uh, you know, is needed to fight this destabilization, all of these coups is, you know, forcing the U.S. out of Africa, forcing the West out so that these African countries can, uh, um, you know, defend themselves and, and, and you know, kind of uh, uh, seek out their own interests rather than, rather than uh, you know, kowtowing to, to U.S. geopolitical interests. Libertarian Institute article, Congress NGOs pressure White House to sanction Africans. The White House is sitting on dozens of potential sanctions for human rights violators and coup plotters in countries in Africa, they report. Um, You know, the thing about this is the sanctions generally are the opposite. They usually say they are to, you know, punish someone who's doing bad or has human rights violations. But generally what we see is pain for the people. And generally it's some fashion of trying to uh, do some kind of a, a, a coup in and of itself. Your thoughts about the sanctions against coup plotters and human rights violations by the Biden administration, Tunde Asazoa. Sure. I mean, economic sanctions are generally a, a tactic of war that, you know, targets 
uh, 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 countries and, and individuals for pressure by really leveraging the U.S. dominance over the global financial and trade system. So, you know, really, like you said, they're designed to exact the maximum human cost from a particular uh, country in order to force that, that country to do the bidding of U.S. and Western imperialism. But, you know, the suffering of civilians is, re- is truly the intended impact, right? And so, you know, I think the U.S. empire is really aware of the devastating consequences of so heavily, uh, um, you know, sanctioning countries and restricting their economies. And, you know, I, I think they, they try to focus on the, the targeted sanctions or whatever to talk about, uh, uh, you know, sanctions as being kinder and a gentler means of bringing countries uh, who don't submit to the will of Western imperialism to heal. But the reality is they, they, they mean starvation and devastation for the masses of people on the ground in, in, in the targeted countries. And they often indiscriminately target uh, um, you know, import and ex- export sectors of a given economy and restrict the country's ability to generate revenue through trade. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it really uh, uh, has, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, outsized effects on, you know, the most vulnerable, vulnerable populations in the country, like the elderly, the chronically ill and disabled, you know, the young, you know, caretakers, women, you know, gender variant people, queer and trans people, you know, these are people that are already facing or under attack, right, by uh, uh, broader systems like patriarchy, capitalism, and colonialism, but they see those attacks as heightened. So I think what we have to understand is that, you know, that there's an under unacknowledged, I guess, white supremacist assumption that, you know, the West, the U.S., and, and, uh, and you know, the governments of the capitalist and colonialist uh, 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 I guess global north have a duty and a right to sanction, right? To save people uh, based on their own determinations and values. Uh, and and I, I think we, that has to, that assumption has to be challenged, right? It provides, uh, uh, you know, it rationalizes and justifies continued, you know, Western global hegemony, U.S. hegemony uh, to refashion local realities in, in line with Western interests. And, you know, really th- this is, uh, what we're seeing is, you know, the U.S. deploying its, its own uh, tools and tactics to, to become ba- basically uh, the quintessential rogue state. It, it's able to just sanction countries indiscriminately without having to, you know, I guess, uh, listen to, to uh, international bodies like, like the U.N. and others. And so I think we have to question, you know, or, or, or ask what entitles the U.S. to inflict punishments on, you know, African people or people throughout the world. Uh, and, and it's not even really raised as a as part of the public discussion, right? And so I, I think you know we're, we're seeing like the normalization of white supremacist domination uh, uh, that's you know kind of fashioned through, through this U.S. and Western consciousness. And we have to question so what right the U.S. and the West have to attack you know African people and and people outside of the, the uh, Africa, right? Like there are sanctions on like. Cuba, you know, Iran, Syria, and, and, and other countries. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it really speaks to, you know, um, uh, unchecked power uh, and, and, you know, the abuse of power. And in the post-Cold War world of U.S. full-spectrum dominance, uh, uh, you know, we don't have sufficient checks on, you know, the rapacious designs of the U.S. empire. And so I, I think, you know, what we really need is to, to, to um, uh, uh, counter it through, 
uh, um, uh, you know, the, the development of popular structures of dual power and, you know, really, uh, I guess, uh, what, what some are calling, you know, a rising uh, uh, multipolarity. Former CIA and State Department official Cameron Hudson told Foreign Policy that the current lack of sanctions makes us look like a paper tiger, while Senator Menendez said the issue has created a gnawing question for those of us who are big advocates for human rights and democracy. Well, we know that sanctions don't work. So this idea that sanctions make us look like a paper tiger uh, uh, I mean, lack of sanctions. No, sanctions make us look like a paper tiger because they don't work. And then this gnawing question about human rights and democracy, we seem to be imposing sanctions on countries, on, on individuals in countries that are actually working for freedom and independence. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to, to remember as well that the U.S. sanctions more African countries or more countries in general than any other uh, uh, state in the world, right? Like in Africa, uh, since since that's what the article kind of focused on, you know, we see uh, some targeted sanctions on uh, folks, officials in countries like, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Central African Republic, Eritrea, right? Uh, uh, Liberia, Libya, Mali, um, uh, Somalia, uh, uh, Zimbabwe, and Sudan. And, and you know, we, we could also look at, you know, the U.S. is a huge human rights abuser, right? And no one sanctioned the U.S. when uh, uh, they killed over a million uh, civilians in Iraq, right? Or they killed over 700,000 in Afghanistan during that 20-year war, and, and folks continue to die, continue to die uh, due to the situation that was caused uh, 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 over there by the United States. Uh, even here in the U.S., right, we've seen so many die due to, you know, the human rights abuses that, are, you know, within its own borders, right? And so I think, you know, this, this uh, veneer or this cover that they're, that they're uh, trying to uh, 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 use uh, uh, by, by employing the language of human rights and, and you know, responsibility to protect or, 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 or um, you know, humanitarianism is really just a shield. And, and it's hypocritical uh, and, and it has to, be, has to be questioned, right? I think what we need is really an ideological decolonization of the idea of human rights, right? Because, you know, this, this top-down uh, conception of it that, that comes from the state and allowing the state to, to define what human rights, when it really should be a bottom-up, people-centered uh, 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 way of, of thinking about, you know, what is it that, you know, the most, uh, uh, I guess you could say, marginalized folks in society need? Like, what, what are the rights that folks should have, whether it means, you know, a right to clean water, and, and what, what are the material things that can be done to achieve that? I think this whole idea of, uh, you know, imposing sanctions and, and militarism and, and uh, you know, the policies of, of, of austerity have to be countered with uh, an ideological decolonization of human rights. And, and so, yeah, I mean, all, all that is to say, uh, I think we, we have to uh, really interrogate, you know, the, all these baseless lies that, that are coming out of you know, the U.S. State Department and its uh, uh, allied, I guess, NGOs and, and the think tanks that are, are coming out with this, uh, with this drivel. For more information, go to blackallianceforpeace.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Haitian people are protesting by the tens of thousands in a move to prevent the Biden administration from instituting another military invasion. Joining us to discuss this now, we have Dr. Margaret Flowers. Dr. Flowers is a co-editor of Popular Resistance. Dr. Flowers, welcome back to The Critical Hour. It's always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Popularresistance.org, a great website. I would recommend that website. I go there every day, and Dr. Flowers writes, If you live in the United States, you probably believe that the problems in Haiti are cholera and gang violence and that the Haitians need our help in the form of a multinational military force to restore order. Dr. Flowers, when was the last time the United States sent military (laughs) to restore order? Your thoughts? Right. Well, and that's exactly it. You know, the United States um, has been, you know, installing these puppet leaders in the country of Haiti, and the people have been protesting that. And now there have been massive protests going on for a few months now, and the U.S. is afraid of losing control. And so this whole restore order is, you know, how do we continue to suppress that popular movement and the will of the Haitian people so that we can keep our, you know, people in power there? And the, your first sentence, you probably believe that the problems in Haiti are, as, as Garland read, that's exactly the NPR narrative. Mm-hmm. And the problem of cholera was implemented, I believe, by the United States or introduced by the United States Army, who dumped human feces into their water supply. And it's not so much gang violence, I don't believe, as it is resistance to uh, to to uh, colonization. Well, absolutely. I mean, as you well know, you know, Haiti was, you know, in 1804 with the revolution, and they uh, became independent. And they've been punished ever since for that. But part of the violence that's going on there is actually being fueled by the United States uh, providing weapons to folks. And, you know, it's a country that has been, um, you know, the U.S. has, has, and other Western imperialist nations have just done whatever we could do to undermine the success of Haiti and to keep it a country that we can use to exploit and to enrich, you know, our wealthy class. And so, um, you know, there is some unrest there. There is a lot of poverty there. Uh, but but the U.S. has been fomenting that and providing weapons and and maybe even people. I remember when Jovenel Moise was, oh, you know, overstayed his presidency and they caught uh, a group of guys that had come down from Florida. They had a van full of wag- a van full mm-hmm. of weapons, you know, and that didn't make big news. But I'm sure that was not an isolated incident. Well, you know, uh, um, uh, Dr. Flowers, one of the things I think is important, if I want to see what job you're going to do, I should see what tools you have. People in Haiti need, they need food and things like that. They need diplomacy and things like that. But we're sending them guns. If I'm going to send you a gun, I'm probably going to stick somebody up and rob them or shoot somebody. The fact of the matter is the last thing the people in Haiti need is more guns. And they're sending people to Haiti with guns, which tells me the guns will be used for violence. Dr. Flowers. Right. Right. And that's that's one of the tactics that the United States. I mean, once you start to understand the tactics that the U.S. uses, because they use the same ones over and over in different countries, um, creating chaos is a common tactic that the United States uses so that they can, you know, take advantage of that and use it. You know, they used it in Venezuela, you know, when uh, we 
put these illegal economic measures on Venezuela, created, you know, real poverty and, and shortages there. And then we said, oh, look, there's a humanitarian crisis. We need to go down and invade them so that we can, you know, help them out. And it's the same thing in, in Haiti. They're just using, creating this crisis so that we can send troops there, so we can suppress the popular will of the people and, and, and keep, you know, maintain our power. And, you know, I'm sure people are familiar with, you know, Hillary Clinton and all the money that the Clinton Foundation took down there and, and just built these, you know, sweatshops down there to exploit the labor of Haiti. Everything the U.S. does there uh, makes it worse for the Haitian people. Where is the international community in either direct support for Haiti, direct opposition to the United States involvement in Haiti, or at least through... Uh, uh, votes at the UN or votes at the OAS. Where where's the international? Because it doesn't seem as though Haiti is getting the the international support that uh, that it needs in order to resist the United States intervention. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and it's um, and so. The U.S. and surprisingly Mexico, I'm not sure why this leftist, you know, quote unquote president in Mexico, AMLO, was part of this resolution to the U.N. Security Council calling for a multinational military force to intervene in Haiti. And so there was an appeal. Black Alliance for Peace was was a big part of that appeal. But it came from the Haitian people um, to Russia and China, who are members of the U.N. Security Council, to oppose that resolution. So that was introduced last week. The U.S. actually introduced two resolutions. One was on sanctions that passed on Friday, uh, sanctioning an individual in Haiti, but opening the door to, to doing more of that. Um, but the second resolution for this military force, when they discussed it in the in the Security Council, both China and Russia spoke out saying, you know, we don't think military is going to actually help the people. And so they've delayed the vote on that. My sense is that the U.S. won't push for a vote until they know that they can win it. Uh, so, you know, hopefully China and Russia will stay strong on that and we won't see a military intervention, um, you know, because as the U.S. envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, resigned last year because he saw the U.S. going down this path of military intervention. And he said that's never been good for the Haitian people. You know, uh, Margaret, uh, I think, uh, Dr. Flowers, excuse me, I think one, no, of the, okay. <laughs> one of the things that Haiti does is exposes the hypocrisy of the U.S. empire two ways. Number one, the Biden administration says, yes, we're standing up for democracies versus autocracies, but they will not allow Haiti to pick their own people to vote and choose their own leaders. That's number one. Number two, the Biden administration, administration screams, you know, they've got their Black Lives Matter masks on. We're all for Black Lives Matter. The Haitian people are black. Their lives don't seem to matter. What do you think about those two things, Dr. Flowers? No, I think that's exactly on target. I mean, it was um, it was Hillary Clinton that basically forced the, the one president after Aristide, uh, Michelle Martelli, on them. And then after that, Jovenel Moise, you know, was also a U.S. puppet. And, and you know, and there's this kind of – and then there, at this point, they're also – Right now, they created this thing they call the Montana Group that's supposed to be representing the Haitian people. But the major progressive social movements down there have pulled out of it because they saw it for what it was. It was basically this group that the U.S. created to try to have this charade of, oh, look, we're expressing the will of the Haitian people. But it wasn't the will of the Haitian people. So the social movements have pulled out. They're working together. They have their own 
uh, plan for what they would like to do in their country, but they can't move forward with it unless the U.S. and the other Western nations stop their interventions. And that's the whole other big piece of this racism, right, is that believing that the Haitian people do not have the capacity to uh, to make their own decisions to govern themselves. I think it's also really important to look at the tactic that the United States is trying to employ in the U.N., and that is using the U.N. as the forum to create this so-called international force that is not actually a U.N. force. And that was so I've been I've been describing this as the United States is using the U.N. to circumvent the U.N. And we know that the United States does not allow its own forces to be under the control of any other uh, military uh, apparatus or leader. So this is basically the United States being using American gangsterism, uh, trying to under the pretext of an international force to impose its military will on Haiti. Absolutely. And I think, you know, calling it the gangsterism is, is exactly what it is. Um, this military force would be completely unaccountable to anybody. And it would just be working with, you know, the de facto president, uh, Ariel Henry, who's, who's, who's terrible. You know, he's, there's no legislature. There's no legal system that's putting any checks and balances on him. Um, and he's, you know, just doing the will of these Western imperialist nations and willing to use violence against his own people, calling for a military force to come in. You know, it reminds me of Juan Guaido, that the U.S. recognized president of Venezuela, right, who, who wanted the military to come in and save his country. Um, that doesn't happen when the U.S. military or any military comes in. It, it, it's violence against the people. It, it, it uh, suppresses the will of the people. The other thing here is that the Biden administration is saying that they're um, sending troops in. They have to go in to solve the problems of gang violence and solve the problems of now they're saying cholera. The problems of cholera and gang violence and all the other problems of poverty that the Haitians have was created by the U.S. empire, was created by the oppression of the Haitians and the refusal to allow them to choose their own course by overthrowing their government and kidnapping their um, the leader that they actually chose. So how in the world are the people who created this mess going to fix it? And why would we believe that was their intent in the first place, Margaret? Right. No, I mean, it is. It's laughable. But this is what the U.S. gets away with. And people believe it. They know, like you said, this is the narrative they're hearing in NPR is that, oh, my gosh, poor Haiti. They have all of these problems and we have to go down there and fix it for them. The best thing that we could do would be to get out of there, to get the U.S. out of there and stop trying to control the people and interfere with them. I mean, think about the fact that, you know, Haiti was a food sovereign nation. It made, you know, they grew so much rice in Haiti that they were exporting it. Then what did the U.S. do? We start subsidizing rice uh, in our own country so that the prices are falling. So now Haitians can't, you know, sell their rice because they're, they reflect the actual price of growing it as opposed to the subsidized price that the U.S. has. We do this all over the place. So, we, you know, we've destroyed their economy uh, in so many ways. We've interfered with their democratic processes, as you said, removing their democratically elected president. Um, we can't solve the problems. We have to stop creating the problems, stop sending weapons. Uh, you know, they've been under a United Nations military occupation now for more than a decade. And, and that's been terrible as well for the people. And then bringing in more military, it's just, um, 
It has to be seen for what it is. It's just an attempt because the people are rising up to further suppress them. And it's not only Haiti where these types of responses are being employed. It's El Salvador. It's Nicaragua. It's it's all over the global south. The United States, through its uh, interventionist policies, have wrecked these economies, are forcing uh, this whole immigration issue, and then we seem to act as though we don't understand why these problems exist. Yeah, I mean, Honduras is an excellent example when the United States under, you know, Clinton, Secretary of State, overthrew uh, the presidency of Manuel Zelaya and put in place, you know, a, a terrible person who just, it, there was amazing, uh, you know, just violence in the country, uh, exploitation of the country, instability, many people having to leave. Um, and it took, you know, it took how many years, you know, 13 years for the people to organize and to be able to elect, uh, you know, and it's amazing that it happened because the election before that, the U.S. completely, you know, ruled that election uh, to make sure that our person won. But um, but the people finally fought back. Yeah, we do this over and over again. And uh, Dr. Flowers, it seems as though that uh, the shine is uh, and luster is gone from Juan Guaido. And it seems to be, to be quite <laughs> frank, it's embarrassing that the U.S. still tries to pretend as though this guy's in charge of anything. We got about one minute. Yeah. So um, but I do hear that the Biden administration is saying that once the uh, new legislature is in place in Venezuela in January, they're going to stop recognizing Juan Guaido. So um, his his time in the in the sun has is fading and it'll be interesting to see, you know, is he going to get propped up at some D.C. think think tank or, you know, how are they going to reward him for being such a good puppet for the U.S.? Yeah, we'll see how that works. <laughs> well, I know one thing. He better not be going to any restaurants in um, in Caracas. I saw a, a video of him trying to go to a restaurant, and the people on the street were trying to drag him out and beat him literally to death. So he he'll, he he to be safe, he better move to uh, he better move to Northern Virginia. We've been talking with Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's the co-editor of PopularResistance.org, a fantastic website. I strongly recommend you check it out every day. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Hungarian politicians are pushing back against the EU's attempt to control their economic and cultural decisions. Also, the U.S. mafia uses the EU for its hegemonic designs and is now stealing their wealth in moves reminiscent of actions against the the global south. Joining us now to discuss these stories and more, we have James Carey. He is the co-host of the podcast The Left is Dead. James, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Always good to be here. Patrick Lawrence writes, despite the economically disastrous impact the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage will have on Europe, Western media still holds its tongue about it. Kind of telling, don't you think, James Carey? Yeah, I I think that everyone, I mean, everyone on our side of the equation knew what happened the moment it happened, right? Um, The U.S. is still putting out this idea that Russia blew up their own pipeline, of course, when you do hear about it, but the media has been silent here. And I think that We've seen the media go silent over quite a bit of things. Um, 
the suffering in Europe in general has not been highlighted. Uh, the energy crisis has already caused so many problems for these European governments that, uh, you know, we're not going to add the pipeline on top of it because we actually did that one. You know, we directly did that one. And now it's going to have indirect effects for the next probably a decade or more. Um, but I think we don't want to talk about it because it doesn't look good. It doesn't make any sense, right? It, what sense does it make that Russia blew up their own multi-million dollar investment? None. And uh, the U.S. just wants, um, you know, they want to punish their allies. Well, they want to punish their clients, as everybody in the world is our client in our mind. But, um, yeah, they want to punish their allies to get them back in line. But they don't want they don't want to bring that to the U.S. It's already bad enough we're seeing white refugees on TV as Ukrainians. You don't want to see Germans next, right? And so it's it in this piece, it, any chance that uh, Russian gas transmissions westward will be resumed is off the table. And I, I find that interesting because I, I remember talking with Garland uh, when the report came back that the whole pipeline had not been destroyed and that some gas would be uh, flowing through it. I said, oh, this is the opportunity now for Europe to really put pressure on the United States and for the functioning element of the pipeline to be turned on. And now it seems as though even that's not going to happen. To me, that speaks volume. Yeah, I think that the fact is that the pipeline isn't going on. You know, you, we saw Biden kind of basically threaten this happening. Um, and now, you know, the EU is relying on liquid natural gas from us. But I think that, um, you know, we don't want to question Russia's motives here because there's no way that Russia had this idea that, oh, our pipelines will be shut off to Western Europe forever. You know, there's no way that they thought this going into Ukraine. I don't think Putin would have done it if that was the case. If he thought he'd never sell gas to Germany again. Um, I think that you're just seeing the U.S. again consolidate. They're cutting these investigations are stopping by, you know, all the governments in the area are saying it's a danger to their own security. Um, you're seeing you're seeing U.S. allies resistant to even touch this subject because they don't want to. I think they don't want to. They don't want to piss off the U.S. And the fact is, they're willing to go and cut themselves off from Russia completely at our behest, which. Seems foolish to me. I mean, Germany's thrown its weight around in the EU for so long now, you'd think they'd be a little bit stronger at home. But apparently they still can't resist us. And I think, um, you know, hey, this is just, I, I, it's strange to see the competitors that we built up after World War II, like Germany, uh, actually be crushed back under our boot again, because I didn't think it would be that way. Well, you know, one could argue they need this lesson that, as we say in Zen, a fool who continues in his folly will become wise. Margaret uh, Kimberly has a great article in Black Agenda Report, Europe Under Control of the U.S. Mafia, which, James, it's the perfect name, it's the perfect title for an article in this circumstance because what we see here is Europe the, the countries of the EU are not members of NATO. They're not partners in NATO. Clearly, they are prisoners of NATO. NATO says do something. If we look at what happened, the people of Germany that were literally holding up signs saying open Nord Stream 2. They were in the streets saying we don't want to freeze. And as soon as that happened, let's be honest, the U.S. blew up the pipeline. You don't blow up the pipeline for your allies, your friends, or your partners. You do it for prisoners. The, the NATO is now is holding the European continent prisoners and using brutality to maintain that status. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think this is all we have left. I mean, what else are you going to do? We'd already forced these countries to go into multiple wars with us over the past 20 years that they weren't really excited about. Look at the backlash here when the French didn't want to go into Iraq, right? I mean, this is just... The U.S. is it's it's closing in on us. I think that the world economy is closing in with China as a competitor and Russia out there. You know, people didn't expect the ruble to rebound, but it turns out when you, when you cut off gas, it, gas actually becomes more expensive. So I don't think people saw things going this way, but the EU states are really learning a lesson. That, that is, you are second to us. Look at, I mean, the U.K., the pound has just fallen in the last month. And that is this is all to inflate our currency. Uh, this is all to continue... The U.S. is, you know, prop up the U.S., especially before this election. We're trying to prop up the U.S., make it look like a functioning economy still. And another good way to do that is billions of dollars in arms packages for Ukraine because that helps out the biggest sector of our economy, right? I mean, I think you're just seeing what what we've been saying and what we've seen since 2003 or even before is just the EU is being dragged along by the U.S. And in the end, they don't really have a choice. The fact is the U.K. is in crisis now. Not even as an EU member state, but as an ally to the U.S., we've sent them into a spiral. The pound is, like I said, the pound is collapsed to keep the dollar up. We have no priorities, and I think it's like anybody on the individual level, when you see your world start to close in, you lash out. And the U.S. is seeing the world start to close in around it, including in Europe, where mass sentiment uh, doesn't want this war. The progressive caucus of the Democratic Party just got fired at by the Democrats today, yesterday and today to retract their letter against the war. So they're firing inside their own house because they're so desperate. I think you're seeing that there's a U.S. empire, it's desperate, and there's also the Democratic Party that's desperate. And this is a last-moment bid to kind of prop this up for, I I don't know, how long these patches keep lasting is getting shorter and shorter. And Henry Kissinger said, to be an enemy of America can be dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal. And... Sputnik has a piece, EU officials blackmail nations to crush alternate views, Hungarian justice minister says. Leaders and officials of the 27-nation EU are blackmailing entire nations, such as Hungary and Poland, because of their efforts to maintain traditional conservative religious and social values. And all of this, while people in Hungary and Poland are foraging in the woods for sticks to heat their home, for firewood to heat their homes because they can't get natural gas. Yeah, I think that, that there is a, obviously, you know, the EU has these progressive, progressive values, social values that they want to enforce. And they have their idea of Western democracy, which they want to enforce, which, you know, if you look at why Viktor Orban kicks somebody like George Soros out of his country, this is why, because they bring these you know, these uh, organizations that promote this type of stuff. And they don't want mass Western culture pumped in there. They don't want the uh, liberal, the sort of liberal social values pumped in. Um, I think there's two, two cases here. Hungary is a bit of a resistor, whereas uh, I think Poland kind of got what they wanted with, uh, they've been bought off for the moment with a, because we're fighting with Russia. Uh, you know, the EU has been forced to fight with Russia, which I think Poland and the uh, Baltic states are a little bit more in favor of than Hungary. But at the same time, before that, it was there was the criticism that they could not govern themselves as they were. You're seeing all the EU countries. I mean, you've seen it since 2010 with Greece. They've all lost any, you know, remnant of sovereignty, and Germany is back in charge of the continent again. Well, uh, let me ask you this: um, 
Does it seem to you that we're seeing the early cracks, the early fissures that will end up um, major cracks in the EU, in NATO? Um, this is the, the, the beginning of the end for the EU. I personally, this is what I think, but I'm going to throw that out to you. When we start seeing people in the EU saying, we don't like this, you're, you're using um, you know, gangster tactics on us, um, we want out. I, I don't see, as the winter gets worse and as the people suffer and the continent boils over, I don't see how these organizations continue to stay viable. James. Yeah, more people are learning that they're not the power centers, right? I mean, in 2010, we have Greece go bankrupt and Syriza ends up capitulating. Um, later on, during the pandemic, we see Italy and the southern European countries suffer harder under COVID uh, than, say, Germany or France or whatever. And you're seeing that the, there's a social, there's a kind of racial imperialism within Europe and that obviously has been there forever. I mean, let's not pretend it's a peaceful continent. Um, but I think you're seeing that start to spark back up. But at the same time, the, now these nationalist movements are also allied against, you know, the multinational organizations like NATO and the EU that, uh, again, these are dictates basically written out by corporate interests, right? I mean, that's whether it's arms manufacturers for NATO or corporate interests for EU trade laws and everything like this. Um, these powers that be are just, you know, they've held this position for so long. But, uh, again, the U.S. is feeling the pinch, so they're going to feel it too. And the more, say, Germany feels the pinch, the harder it's going to hit Italy or Greece or Spain, and especially Eastern Europe, which has always been a sort of the Eastern EU countries are an excess labor pool. So they're going to be punished too. It's like us with Mexico, you know, I think they'll be treated the same way and they will want out. I mean, who wouldn't? And I think it's going to be the people that are starving in the streets and freezing in their homes that are going to wind up pushing this where the elites are trying to maintain the status quo. Yeah, they, they, they put the Band-Aid on it again, right? This is the same thing with the election of Macron again against the same, same opponent. This is a Band-Aid. You, you have the same conditions that created all these problems to begin with, and you perpetuate them by putting the stop gaps in to try to keep them going just a little longer. And the problems are only going to get worse. The anti-EU sentiment, the anti-NATO sentiment, these are only going to increase the more they continue to do the same exact things that cause the problem. And, uh, you know, I would argue your thoughts on the U.K., in my opinion, what we're seeing now is the result of a political collapse, that the country is, I wouldn't say the country is ungovernable and that the populace is ungovernable, but it is ungovernable in that the current state of the government is so disconnected from the needs of the people that it can't govern the people using the tactics and with the goals that it currently has. James. No, there's no plan. Um, you know, the only thing they have is uh, reheated Blairism, right? I, this is all, they're either going to try austerity. Well, they're just going to try austerity. It's the UK. Um, they're going to try austerity. They're, gonna, they're not going to increase taxes on people who need it. Um, I think that when you have a country like the UK that spends most of its existence as an empire, and then you tear it down to this tiny little island, I think that, uh, you know, like us, being brought back within our borders, it's going to take us a little longer, but I think we'll see something very similar here, too. We, it will become ungovernable because the institutions have just been so gutted over the years that they don't work. And they were never meant to respond to the popular will, so there's no popular investment in them. You know, there's no popular investment in either party in the U.K. right now. Uh, the labor is taken back over by Blairites. Um, 
they can't find somebody who wants to be the prime minister for the conservatives. They got to drag them up and force them to be, you know, Johnson had to say no again. So I, I think that you'll see that here too. I think you see this as a result of some, a country that's used to being an empire cannot provide the spoils of empire anymore. And again, they put in stop gaps for 30 years, but here we are. James Carey is the co-host of the Left is Dead podcast. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 